choose a brand that's either bigger than you or cooler than you. So you are investing time and you do want it to kind of pull you up in some way. Um, and not to be, it's like, what well, can I get out of it? Because obviously you're an active participant too. Like, what can I offer this other brand? Is it a bigger brand that will just get Pocampo in front of a lot more people? Or maybe it's a small, totally only been out for four months, but it's so cool. This is Get Shit Done, a podcast that dives into how women entrepreneurs are gaining traction and growing companies that scale generational impact. Each episode is real talk from women founders who have successfully scaled companies. You'll learn what they did to grow, how they did it, and the tools they used to get it done so you can too. To get access to more episodes of Get Shit Done, along with free traction tools, head on over to shegetshitdone.com. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done podcast, queens and comrades. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf, a.k.a. Chief Get Shit Done Officer. Did you know that women own nearly half of businesses, but we only generate 4% of total revenues? That's why our motto is fuck Our goal here each and every week is to teach you the traction strategies and tactics with the tools and templates you need to get shit done and grow on your own terms to scale generational impacts. Today, we will be breaking down how Maria Busted, founder of Pocampo, was able to pivot from industrial designer to a thriving entrepreneur, disrupting the micromobility space. Micromobility? Yeah, I had that same question. So think biking, scooting, skating, or just alternative mobility that isn't a car or train. Pocampo is a company that makes bags for keeping it cute while carrying what you need during transit with style and ease. Maria will teach you how to intentionally scale a capital-intensive company through what she calls creative funding to grow the company 182% year over year while closing in on the seven-figure mark. So here's what you're going to learn from Maria. How to avoid making the mistakes she made around thinking if you build it, they will come. Spoiler, they will not boo. (laughs) What to do when you're first to market and don't have examples to follow and how to establish yourself as a leader. Also, how to do smart product development when you don't have enough cash through product pulsing. This is probably one of my biggest aha moments in our convo. Also, how omni-channel over everything has made them a leader as well as how she bootstrapped for a decade through creative funding and what that looks like. But before we get started, we need support from you. To help our team show up and support you on your scaling journey week after week, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Better yet, share it with a friend. This helps you know when episodes drop every week and tells the algorithms to find more queens and comrades like you that we can support too. Also, if you want to get our weekly Get Shit Done traction briefings that break down every episode with key takeaways, free resources, templates, and the tools you can use, head on over to shegetshitdone.com slash join so we can slide up in your inbox and help you get it done weekly. But without further ado, Queen Maria Busted. Maria, welcome to Get Shit Done. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks, Alex. 
So she's also another fellow New Yorker, but she's um, she's much further away. She's in Manhattan from me. And I always joke that um, people that are in New York, when you're in different boroughs, it's basically like being in another state. Yeah, and even more, I'm in upstate Manhattan, so that feels like a you're in upstate place. Manhattan. <laughs> you're in upstate Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Also, fun fact: um, we were introduced by way of um, a Michelle. friend, but you, yeah, Michelle, who's in Montana. And if you haven't listened to Michelle's episode, go and check it out. She scaled her company to you know seven figures, three years profitable. Um, mm-hmm. but Michelle and I went to undergrad and then she was like, oh, you have to talk to Maria. And Maria used to live in Chicago where, as you all know, I spent 10 years there and built my, built my first two companies, e-commerce mm-hmm. companies there. So I'm really excited about, um, this conversation, but as always, um, we want to know a little bit about you, Maria, in terms of how the hell you even got here. Um, cause context matters. So take us back. What were you doing before Pocampo was even a thing? Sure. Um, My background is industrial design. So that's like product design for real physical, tangible products. And um, my first job out of school actually was doing sewn goods, soft goods, cut and sew. Uh, I worked for a company that made coolers and lunch bags like for Target and Walmart. So very mass market. But it was the first time I had worked in this subcategory of soft goods. And I really liked how the design process, it's really iterative. It's quick to make adjustments. You get to play with different fabrics and textures and colors. Everything I had done in school was more towards like plastic things, you know, where there's like you work and then you make the same thing for years and years and years because you built this expensive tool to do it. So I love the um, process of doing sewn goods. And it also taught me how to work with factories. It's like I said, it's very iterative. There's a ton of back and forth. Oh, could you move this over here? Could you use this different thread color? You know, so it's very a very close relationship with the manufacturing partners, and I learned how to do all that there. Um, then my next job was working for a brand and packaging agency, and our customers or clients were big Fortune 500 companies like Procter and Gamble and Microsoft and 3M and Kimberly Clark, a lot of um, fast moving consumer product goods. And I started there as an industrial designer working on bottle shapes. <laughs> it's called structure. And um, that was also really awesome because it used both right brain and left brain. Like we, the products we were packaging were mostly goop, you know, so it'd be like shampoo or laundry detergent or something like that, you know? And if you think about it, if you had a bunch of laundry detergent in the glass, you wouldn't be able to know one from another. So it had this great structural, sculptural element. So if somebody's walking down the sh- aisle in Target and Tide is all about being strong and fierce and good, you know, like you want that bottle shape to really evoke that. Whereas maybe if the detergent was more about being soft and gentle, you would want the bottle shape to evoke that. So I had this real like sculptural element that I really enjoyed. But then it also had an element where like, but you don't really want to pay for the packaging. So it needed to like go down the assembly line, the filling line, like perfectly, and it needed to be lightweight and easy to make and all this stuff. So it really was a great combination of kind of right brain, left brain. And I enjoyed it a lot, obviously. Um, but as I was working there, I started to drift to more of these upstream projects. Um, so that would be before we even like got to the packaging part, just thinking about what these new products and brands should be. And 
working with companies like Procter and Gamble, which is a very science-driven company, you know, they're like, we developed this new fabric softener and it has these scent molecules that will stay in your clothes extra long. And if you like run, it releases more scent and the scientists are all excited about it. And then it's kind of like, okay, now what, you know? And so I led the team that would help, will go into the field and do research with consumers to try to like unlock what this could mean to consumers with different kind of consumer groups, and then help develop the design language that they would be able to see that and it would resonate with them at shelf. I really liked kind of like that, like, here's an idea, here's the white space, and then connecting the idea with the consumer together. I thought that was such fun work. Um, so that was my background professionally before Pocampo. I've been an avid cyclist since college, really. I, um, I liked biking around University of Illinois, like the college campus scene. And then I studied abroad in Germany for a year. And that's really where I saw how you can like bike your whole life and not just as a college student, because the town I was in, in Germany, you would see um, families biking, like the parents Everyone. with their kids, you know, people would be biking to work in their suits, like grandparents would be biking through, you know, like, you know, it was just like everyone. And mm -hmm. it seems so stupid now, but I was like, oh, you can actually bike your whole life. I didn't even think about that. I just assumed you would get a car, you know? Um, so when I came back to the States and in Chicago, it's very flat, it's on the grid system. It's very easy yeah. to bike there, even before they have all the had all the great infrastructure that they have now, I just kept biking and I loved it, you know. And mm -hmm. one of the things I would struggle with would be like how to carry things on the bike because when you wear a backpack, you get really sweaty. Backpacks are kind of sporty. Um, your normal like shoulder bag maybe would swing around or fall down your arm. It'd be distracting and distracting while biking. Like those two things aren't good together. Um, but then the bags that was meant to go onto the bike they're just so like utilitarian and frankly just ugly yeah. <laughs> you know and i was really looking for like why can't i just have a bag i can put on my bike take off and then use like a normal bag throughout my day regardless of if i was going to meetings or having a client lunch or going out with friends after work you know just having a bag that i wanted to carry with me and there was one morning where like it was such the trade-off just like crystallized, you know, it was like a beautiful mm. spring Chicago morning. And Alex, you know, those beautiful spring Chicago mornings, like you oh, want to goodness. enjoy them because you just yeah. went through months of hell, you know, and, and you're like, oh my God, it's a perfect morning. Before it gets <laughs> super hot and yes. then it goes back to cold. <laughs> totally. And it's like, I remember it was just one of those mornings, like the birds were chirping, perfect day. And I was like, oh, I totally want to bike to work today. But then I thought about the day I had ahead and the different meetings and doing this and doing that. I'm like, oh, you know, I can't really, I have this cute bag I want to bring, you know, but just, uh, how do I do And I'm like, this is such a stupid trade-off, you know? And then as I started to think about um, what an obvious product it was, but it also felt like space for a new brand, you know, because mm -hmm. all the bike stuff was so, and still largely is very like performance, you know, like you're yeah. a racer or a racer wannabe and very, all about speed and light and everything mm. or it was real like kind of grungy gritty like tough urban cyclist guy you know um yep. and i didn't like neither of those things were re spoke to me at all and it like didn't speak to like the people i biked with you know my friends you know and it just felt like there was space for a new brand that would be more about kind of like sustainable, healthy living, enjoying your city and, and that kind of thing. So 
Um, once I had the idea for the product and for this brand, I was like, oh my God, this is the best idea. <laughs> but I can see more and more people biking all the time, starting to do my market research. Oh my God, cities across the world are putting in billions of dollars of infrastructure to make biking better. There's going to yep. be more people biking every month. They're going to be needing product just like this. Oh my God, it's a gold mine. Yep. <laughs> Let's go for it. <laughs> and um, that was the beginning. <laughs> I love this. You also tackled like the problem you're solving. And this is it's so interesting to me because I biked when I was in Chicago. Um, I have, there's just like this huge like biking community. Um, and mm -hmm. like I had a lot of mentors who were like insane bikers. Like they got the like $10,000 bike. They were biking right. from state to state. Um, right. And I got this like clunky Schwinn bike that's really hard to like move up and down stairs. <laughs> but it was nice when you didn't want to take the subway or get in an mm -hmm. Uber. Um, and actually I just started picking back up biking in New York and I've been obsessed, like just got oh, a bike off of, off of, um, Craigslist and I need to get one of, um, one of your bags because that was one of the things I'm like, I want to have this nice bag going to and from meetings. Like I'm very stylish when I bike, like I don't just dress down. I'm in my like gear for the day. I go to cocktails on my bike, you know, right, totally. So, it's a whole thing. So I'm like, everything's clunky. Everything's weird. Like, so I love, love, love what you've built, especially as someone who is dibbled and dabbled into biking. And what's really interesting to me about your particular background is so many people go into products and commerce, but they don't necessarily have the background. And that's not to say you have to, but you're unique in the sense that you had a design background and you're a great example of what it looks like to be founder market fit. Um, so <laughs> I, yeah, like where it's like, oh, I didn't have to, you know, like Sarah Blakely, you know, made a multi-billion dollar empire, but her background was not in, you know, like that material it wasn't hosiery. Yeah. Shape, yeah. Hosiery or shapewear. Like that, it wasn't a thing. So neither one's wrong, but the fact that you had the design background is really, really powerful. So I want to dive in because one of the things you had mentioned to me around, you know, starting this company is, and you kind of alluded to it already, is like one of your first mistakes was that you're like, if they you build it or you design it, they will come. And you thought, you know, this company is going to be a million in its first year. And I think a lot of us when we're like, you know, young entrepreneurs just getting started, we have that assumption. Um can you walk us through what really happened in that first year? Once you found, okay, this is going to be a gold mine. I have the background. I have the expertise. I know manufacturing. We're going to market. Once you went to market, what happened? Walk us through that. Yeah, I feel like that was my biggest learning was, and I, uh, as designers, you're kind of taught like design something good and then the sales will come or like, my work here is done. Go out and sell. You know? Ooh, right. Like <laughs> I, how... yeah, the, the sales and marketing department got it from here, but like you don't see the work <laughs> right, what they totally. had to do. <laughs> or even like the more operational stuff, like yeah. um, sewing or sourcing and fulfillment mm. and just like cash management and all of that. Like, I don't know. I just kind of thought once you hit the good idea is the main thing and then everything else will fall in place. Obviously, 
Um, that is not how it goes. <laughs> um, but, and we had a, I mean, this could be a super long answer to this question, but I would say, um, you know, here we are, that was 2009 that we launched and just getting to launch was hard, you know, like figuring out how to manufacture small quantities of products. Locally, oh, we hear domestically, that all the time. You know, yeah. um, knowing we weren't ready to go overseas and make thousands of anything, you know, and um, it took, there was a lot of false starts, a lot of like feeling comfortable with launching something that wasn't quite right, but feeling like wanting to test the waters and figuring out the right prices and the right kind of places to put it. And then dealing with the market not really being ready yet. You know, I was so passionate. I mean, I still am. That's why I'm still doing it. Um, but realizing that in 2009, that was uh, before bike share, before scooter share for sure, before protected bike lanes, um, before social media kind of, you know, um, before e-commerce was anything like it is now. And so, oh, it was mostly like I was thinking bike shops is where we'll sell this product. And we did get them into a lot of bike shops that first season, maybe a dozen in Chicago. I mean, it was great. You know, I went door to door with samples and the, most people were like, yeah, that's really cool. We'll try it, you know, and bike shops then and still largely are, are kind of like mechanic shops in a way. It's a lot about fixing bikes. It has a lot of greasy hands. Um, it was a lot of guys that work in the environment still largely is um, the merchandise that they would sell was very utilitarian <laughs> um, and it wasn't like a nice shopping place you know so like people wouldn't go in to browse it's like you kind of like go in especially our target customer who maybe did not have the best experiences in bike shops for you know that's a whole other conversation but you know it'd be like i just need a bike lock and then i'm out of there you know and um, so feeling like there was kind of this, like, we feel, I felt really passionate about the potential for the product and the brand, but then being like, uh, how do I sell this? How do I find these customers, you know, and feeling like yeah. something's not, this is a lot harder than I was expecting it to oh be. Oh my goodness. So you, you yeah. ended up getting into, you know, obviously bike shops, that's such a really, you know, clear path, not always the easiest because there is some elitism amongst bikers and bike shops, mm -hmm. which I think you're alluding to. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, from there, what did you see that was the stickiest for, for you um, when you, especially early stage, you remind me of, you know, well, you're not going to fail. Pets.com failed. Um, but, you know, when you're early to market or first to market, it is a blessing and a curse, right? So yeah. you went into those bike shops. Was there anything else that you realized was working at the time, especially not having the tools you have today? Yeah, you know, um, really trying to increase sell-through. You know, that's always what you need to do in stores. But honestly, it was for the first five years there, we kind of did a diversion being like, it's really hard to sell this product. <laughs> it kind of feels like first we have to convince more people to start biking and then start to bike work to work and all these steps before they even ready for a Pocampo product and feeling like to just kind of keep the business going and growing. If we could diversify the product line to have some bike bags, but then maybe some other 
functional, stylish bags for our type of consumer. So we did yoga bags because yoga was huge then. We did some travel bags. We did some diaper bags, really just trying to be like that stylish, functional combination. And, you know, it worked in that we grew every year. Um, and actually, 2015 was a really good year for us, but we also felt really stretched so thin because all those bad types I just mentioned, those are totally different industries, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it was like finding different stores and buyers, different trade shows. It was a team of three people and, you know, it was just like, okay, we're growing, but this is not sustainable. And it always felt like we were getting pulled further and further away from the bike mm -hmm. stuff, which is really like my passion is to help people yeah biking, you know, and you kind of need to like stay with your passion to be able to navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. Oh. And so when you like are yes. further from it, it is kind of like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> I love that you're you know? making this because I, we had a traction class last night around like staying focused for Q4 and the ongoing theme we keep hearing and is across all of these interviews for when success happens and when mistakes happen is when you lose that focus and shiny mm -hmm. object syndrome is mm -hmm. real, especially mm -hmm. when your job as CEO, as founder is to bring in money. Like your mm -hmm. company, if it's not selling stuff, it's dying, right? You can't sustain, you know, if nothing's coming in. So it's really tempting and sometimes you have to do what you got to do, but it's really tempting to go and just add new products and, and whatnot. But then mm -hmm. it's so easy to then go away from, wait, why do I get up and do this every day? I don't give a fuck about yoga. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. care about that. Um, but it actually, you mentioned that, it, you know, when we we con originally connected, mentioned that, you know, you did see uh, a, a a spike. So 135% year over year growth from mm -hmm. diversifying product um, and mm -hmm. marketing. So mm -hmm. what did you do that worked? Because it sounds like you went from actually we're going all over the place. How did you mm -hmm. reel it back in and say, okay, diversification in fashion and product is really important because consumers aren't going to buy the same thing over and over again, unless obviously new colors and ways. But how did you tighten it so that you could see that level of growth? Yeah, and I think it's always this dance of like responding to the market, and, but then also being a leader within it, you know? So once bike share started to happen, I mean, that just really was kind of the catalyst for finding a lot more people were biking by such big numbers and kind of our customer, you know? So that was a time where I was like, you know what, let's go back to the bike stuff. And that was a hard decision because our revenue shrunk. I mean, we cut customers, we cut products, um, team shrunk, but it's kind of one of those like cut off the dead branches so that your tree can grow kind of a thing. And really like being like, no, we are focusing on making biking or micro mobility as it's now called a better and more seamless parts of people's lives. So that's what we do. So that's what we're focused on. And then um, the growing now it's, for example, e-bikes have really been taking off. I'm an e-bike convert myself. And one thing we noticed just this last year is that we're getting a lot of inbound inquiries from e-bike stores, which we never really got before. E-bike stores didn't even really exist two years ago, you know? No, it's so um, but, um And also hearing from people that the e-bike rider is a little bit different. Um, they're more, they're newer to biking and they're totally using it for trips, for car replacements, for leisure. They want kind of fun, functional stuff. 
And then we were able to see like what of our products e-bike stores and people were buying. And it was like, actually, this is kind of different. Like this one style was always our laggard. You're like always kind of almost on the chopping block. Oh, but I like it. I'm going to keep it in another season. And now like that's our bestseller. Okay, there's something about e-bike riders where they really like these trunk bags. Let's look at, you know, this product category. Oh my God, this whole category is so stale. You know, no wonder they're calling us wanting some product because everything yeah. else looks like it's been unchanged for 15 years. I mean, what can just we look do? at Amazon. Amazon stuff oh, for I know. bike products is trash. Oh, it's so gross. Ugh. I know. And um, being like, okay, I, so there's obviously room for more in this category. So that's what we're going to focus on our product development for next season. Because, you know, I'm trying to kind of go at it that way where it's like, we know this is what we bring to this environment. This is what we're seeing is what people are wanting what else can we do in this space? So it's kind of like, you know, this push and pull where it's like, you don't want to be completely responsive, but you don't want to, but you want to be true to what you're seeing going on mm. and what's working. I love this. It also reminds me of Michelle had said, data, not drama, follow the data. <laughs> yes. And when you're starting, like, I, I love that mm. you mentioned this around the passion. You're just so excited. You're like, I just want to get this thing out in the world. I want people to be just as excited. But sometimes that, passion doesn't always lead you in the right directions at that moment, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so by complementing it with the data and saying, you know what, mm -hmm. initially when you're just getting to market, you don't have enough data to even know. You just have to test things. But then mm -hmm. as you test, it's now leaning into that. And where we see founders starting getting overwhelmed and just producing things that no one asked for is that they're not really tracking on the back end. Mm -hmm. what's working and not. So what are some of the best practices you're doing to follow um, that consumer response? Because I totally agree with you, especially when you're in commerce, consumers will say they want certain things. But um, I remember our shell from Bombshell said this too. She was like, we had consumers asking us for, you know, um, swimwear forever. But when we finally put it out there, there were crickets. I know. They, like consumers will say they want certain things, but this is where you can defeat that is going towards the data because mm -hmm. we don't, sometimes we will bullshit ourselves and they will tell you if you want to understand someone and what they care about, follow their bank account. Right. So in mm -hmm. your, mm -hmm. in your experience, what are some tools that you and your team are using to stay into that pulse of the consumer that other founders can be doing um, in centralizing that data so it can be powerful and making the right decisions for what you roll out next? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I I'm, I used to do so much user research and so I have very strong opinions about this. And one thing I refuse to ask is like in a survey or something, will you buy this for a hundred dollars? Cause I'm like, whatever they say, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. <laughs> the only, like, the only way to know it. is if they actually do it. Um, so, I mean, you can kind of like get at things, but really the proof in the pudding is if they actually do it. And so I, before, and because I appreciate now just how much work goes into launching anything askew, you know, not just the design, the sourcing, figuring out how to pay for it, putting it up, doing it. I mean, it's just so much work to launch something that it's like, I don't really want to do it unless I feel pretty good that it's going to work out. And so the way that we test ideas is we'll often um, bring partner with another brand or do something like um, bring on a product 
to see if people will buy this kind of thing from us, you know, or do an OEM thing. So by that, I mean, like, source it and do a small customization to make it feel like a Pocampo thing. Like, for example, water bottles, all of our bags have water bottle pockets. So that seems like an obvious thing to do would be to sell a Pocampo water bottle as maybe an add-on thing to bring up the cart size. But that could but be we never sold one of those. And yeah. everybody's got a lot of water bottles. So would they buy yep. one from us? I don't know, you know? So um, we're so we're testing this now actually for kind of like back to school and holiday. If take a, get a water bottle, do some small customizations, like put our logo, our colors, a little packaging for us, buy a hundred and see how it goes, you know? And mm -hmm. doing so you're things not doing like that. Whole, you're not doing a whole push. You're just saying, we're going to test this. So like, are where are you getting that product from to test it out? Yeah, you know, and this is um, over all of those years of slowly building. One mm. of our, I think, greatest arrows in our quiver is our um, sourcing and supply chain. So one of our colleagues lives in Hong Kong, and so she is can have daily interaction with you know Alibaba vendors, you know, which can be kind of sketchy, but can also there's some good gold oh, mines in there. Too. Yeah. Um, we've did similarly with bike lights. That's another thing on our products, our bags, there's like a place to clip on a bike light. Should we sell a bike light? Maybe, I don't know. You know, so we found also a vendor for bike lights that are cool, work with our bags where we could kind of customize it. One thing we added was a cute little storage pouch so you can keep your bike lights in a cute pouch in your bag and it fits in the oh, bag perfectly. Oh, I would perfectly. love that. You yeah. know, so like small little customizations that isn't like starting from scratch, you know, um, but something that you can do for a hundred units and just see if it goes, you know, and then being able to watch it. Like if we promote it and support it, are they selling, you know? And if so, can we do something a little bit more custom, a little bit more unique? Um, and would that also get better margins on it and sell that in greater quantities? So I Amazing. think like kind of testing things that way. I love that. So then this is, oh my God, I love this because I think one of the fears for founders and it goes back to capital intensive, right? Doing products can be capital mm -hmm. intensive, but mm -hmm. instead of doing a whole push, um, you can do these pulses. So you're getting it, mm -hmm. you know, testing a few units instead of you all you know, saying we're going to just full jump into this. So when you finally get those units to test, are you all just like getting stickers to put on it? Or you said little customizations. What are you all doing? And it sounds like you're doing this very efficiently at a low cost. So you now get it from an Alibaba or whoever, and then you're adding your branding onto it. What does that mm -hmm. process look like? Well, it depends. Like some of the Alibaba, like OEM suppliers, you know, like for water bottles, they just make water bottles. And you can, I mean, you have to be careful with Alibaba, of course, you know, because there's really crappy stuff, but there's also really good quality stuff, you know. So if you look for the right, like certifications and everything, so you feel really good about the products, you don't want to hurt your brand by putting out something shitty, you know, you feel good about the products, you test it. Um, and then doing like a color change or a screen print or a custom tag or, something fun on it, you know, um, that's, they're usually pretty well set up to do those kinds of things. You know, with the bike lights, we, we made the pouches, you know, it's just like a little satin pouch that we had our logo screen printed on. And then we ship that, put it in the box <laughs> and ship it together, you know, 
um, things like that. Just trying to think of how it can be a little bit of a value add. Um, because one of the challenges with doing the OEM thing is it's all over Amazon too. You know, like all those factories are out selling the same products on Amazon. So if you have a shrewd shopper who's going to be doing their research, you don't want them to be like going on Amazon and be like, oh, look, I can buy the same thing for 50 cents less, you know? And so we try to like have something a little bit special with everything. So it's not the exact same thing that you'll see on Amazon. And it gives it a little bit of a Pocampo spin, whether it's a little Ooh. added reflection or um, because reflectivity is so important to our customers or convenience or storage or just whatever. Um, just a little thing, you know, that we can add that makes it more us mm. for these tests. Like, um, we just try to break even on them, you know, so we don't hold those tests up to the same gross profit rigor as our normal. But the way we see it is like, we're just trying to explore if this is a viable option for us. And if it sells, you know, like, okay, good. We sold that first batch in two months. That's good. You know? So now we feel like this has potential and let's, you know, invest a little bit more resources in it so that it's not so off, you know, obvious what it is for people who, who know sourcing, um, but a way to really bring down that risk. Okay. Yeah. That I love yeah. this, especially like understanding, you know, we, before we clicked record, um, I was mentioning to Maria, like we've all been there as entrepreneurs, no matter how like long you've been in the game, but from when you start, you're like, how did someone do this? What is that nitty gritty? And I love that you went into, okay, we went to Alibaba, we went here. Um, so I love this and also the time for testing because sometimes it's hard to let go. It's like, did we do enough? Did we get enough data? Is this mm -hmm. meaningful? So I love mm -hmm. that. And then OEM is like an original manufacturer, right? Along those lines? Yeah, original equipment manufacturer. Got it. So I, I want to stick on this, the partnerships angle, which I think is really powerful, especially when you are not a well-known brand and you're trying to build that awareness and having alignment with um, – you know, companies that are in your vertical, but not, you know, necessarily competing. Um, mm -hmm. What is your process um, in terms of finding those type of partnerships? What's, what do you and your team think about? And then how do you approach it? Partnerships are one of my favorite things for early stage companies. I mean, later stage companies too, um, in terms of just like combining forces. So how do you approach that today? What has worked really well? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so, it's like my go-to for um, smart marketing um, because it's like the upsides are just so many, you know, I think um, getting access to more customers for brand awareness, um, testing out new products, just being chummy with other brands in your space. I feel like that is always so helpful. You know, they'll be like, Oh, I'm doing a photo shoot and we want to put a bag in it. Or I'll be like, I'm doing a photo shoot and I want to put a helmet. Can I use your helmet? You know, and then they'll share the photos, you know? So I just feel like you can't have too many of those healthy relationships. I remember hearing, um, and I don't remember who said it. It was like some famous PR guy in New York, but he was talking about collaborations and partnerships. And he said, choose a brand that's either bigger than you or cooler than you. And I, that really stuck with me. Um, I love that. <laughs> yeah, like, um, like who, because you are investing time and you do want it to kind of pull you up in some way. Um, and not to be, it's like, what well, can I get out of it? Because obviously you're an active participant too. Like, what can I offer this other brand? Um, but I think just, 
when we evaluate different opportunities or ideas, I do think of it that way. Like, is it a bigger brand that will just get Pocampo in front of a lot more people? Or maybe it's a small, totally only been out for four months, but it's so cool. <laughs> you know, like their people are cool. The people are looking for early, you know, cool things. Yeah. Um, they're doing cool things that we haven't thought to do. Rather, you know, maybe they're really active on TikTok, which we have no presence or whatever, you know, and so um, kind of go through those two, like what one or the other to help us be like, this is good or maybe not right now. Um, I do find working with smaller brands is really fun because it's fast, you know, and um, sewn product is fast. And so I'm kind of on this like, you know, you work like four months ahead, you know, and so working with smaller companies where it's gonna be like, this is cool. Okay, let's do it for Christmas. <laughs> there's still time, you know, or let's do something for next spring. You know, there's still time. Whereas when you start talking with the larger companies, you it's can't like, well, do that. it's like, yeah. you know, it's two to three years out before you can do something, which, you know, has value. But um, sometimes you just like to test an idea, like you want to test it now. And so that you can get it into your own product development or whatever for next year or the year after. I love that. And another thing in terms of where you experience growth, 182% growth year over year is that you were able to have a really good omni-channel approach. And it's so funny when you mention that because I'm like, you know, she's been in corporate before because <laughs> omni-channel is such a, you know, you hear that more on the corporate side, which is uh, a really good way for them to have a marketing mix that's powerful um, because mm -hmm. one of the mistakes we see founders make is putting their eggs in one basket. And here's the difference is that you need to maintain focus, but like you can't just rely on Facebook, especially channels you don't own in order for you to grow because they you are at the whim of them increasing their cost per click, um, especially social channels and digital channels. And you're, when you're in commerce, I remember hating this, like Q4, you will get washed by big brands. They are putting so much spend on digital advertising that if you solely rely on that one channel, like you just, you you can't, you won't be able to, to sustain it. So what was the point of the company where you're saying, okay, we need to develop a really strong omni-channel omni approach. And then what channels are now your mix that you feel is really powerful for your brand? Yeah, um, well, we started with wholesale. So we've been kind of wholesale is kind of in our DNA. Um, and I'll say that there was a time where um, I was like, you know, what, this is so much work, especially the smaller stores. Um, and you don't make as much money on it as you do online. We're a small team. Let's just focus on growing our online sales. And to see when we kind of didn't like can't pull, intentionally pull out of stores, but just didn't support it anymore. And obviously then the sales go down in those markets, you know, we're like, we used to have like a, a really strong foothold in retail in Chicago. And then we're like, you know what, let's just focus somewhere else. The sales from that whole region online also went down. And that really showed me that it's such a symbiotic relationship, you know, that just like being in the stores, being um, around product, like kind of in that same like mental schema, you know, just the brand awareness of seeing it, hearing people talk about it in the stores, you know, um, really is valuable. And R&D. I mean, it's so powerful. <laughs> I used to love in person 
fittings when, you know, my former company mm-hmm. is in the denim space, e-commerce. And just being able to hear from our salespeople that were on the floor, hearing what people cared about helped us to even yeah. make product decisions and new rollout decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in-person is so valuable just to talk to people. I look kind of like, um, you know, we before COVID, we would do like fairs, you know, and it's just yeah. a great way to like test out your marketing company, you know, because you'll be like, oh, hi, let me show you my products, you know, and you're like going through your kind of mental bullet points, you know, and then maybe like the fifth thing you say is like, oh, really? You know, and like, oh, that's the one thing. Okay, that's top first thing on the hang tag now, (laughs) you know, around the product page. (laughs) And even I love that you mentioned this because even the way that we do marketing, it's so funny because founders would be like, oh my God, you all speak our, my language. And I'm like, that's very intentional because we literally listen to the language that our tribe of founders says. And instead of mm-hmm. us coming up with some cute and quirky marketing lingo, we're not doing that. We're saying exactly what they say. Because mm-hmm. it's- Using what's that the their words, you know? Yeah. And I think like when we have this one um, bag where like, the technical word is called a pannier. It's like a side bag that goes on the rear rack. People mm-hmm. who are new to biking will often call that a saddle bag, which is um, oh, horses. more like from horses. Yeah. yeah. But in bike world, a saddle bag is a little bag that goes under the bike seat, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think like this is just an example of knowing especially with the e-bike market, it's a lot of new people. The last thing we want to do is be like, well, actually a saddlebag is a little bag under the bike seat. And this is called a pannier, you know, because it's where they are. Last thing you want to do, you know? So when we do our product copy, we want to honor like the people who know, we don't want them to feel like, oh, this is This company doesn't know anything about biking looking, they're calling them the wrong thing. But we also don't want the people who don't know what a pannier is to be like, I was looking for a saddlebag and why, you know, so like just really trying to like listen to the customer, the words that they're using and making sure it's like speaking to everyone. I love that. So you have, you know, your, your omni-channel collection of strategies includes wholesale. I know, I think we went on a tangent, but it's a great (laughs) tangent because the marketing messaging I also see founders who are like, well, I'm not a marketer. And it's just like, you don't need to be, just listen to your customer. Mm -hmm. Do not try to give them, like, you don't need to speak in a way where they're not going to understand, use their language. So you have wholesale distribution. You also have the partnerships piece of it. You have your own e-commerce. Is there anything else that has worked really well or those are three main things? Well, we do we do our website, we do wholesale, and we do sell on marketplaces, including Amazon. And um, I do think of distribution as part of your brand communication. So this is a, another reason why I think it's important. Omnichannel is important for Pocampo because I really want Pocampo to be an accessible brand, not like elitist. And I think that's part of like when I started Pocampo, one of the things I didn't like about a lot of the bike stuff is it felt really elitist and judgy, you know, like you go to oh a my God, yeah. ride and you could just see people like looking at your bike or whatever and be like, oh, seriously, you know, or going, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah, seriously. And like <laughs> not wanting that, you know, and so yeah. being like, where the, our customers are shopping, um, even if it is Amazon, I know people shop on Amazon and uh, you know, it's okay, you know, and really wanting to be there um, where they are and not feeling like it's, it's an exclusive thing. Um, another yes. thing is when I think 
of um, a product like ours, we're really growing by the, it's a volume game, you know, like the more units we can sell, the more money we'll make. And pocampo.com is really just one storefront, you know, it's like an awesome storefront where everything is just how we want it. You know, I kind of think of like a flagship store on Michigan Avenue or Fifth Avenue or something like it's amazing. You get to but, control But it. it's yep. just one, you know, yep. <laughs> and we need a lot more storefronts to sell mm -hmm. more product to hit our growth goals, you know, and so um, th thinking of it that way, you know, where it's like we love Pocampo.com. It's like everything Pocampo, you know, but we to hit the growth goals, we need to be in more places. And because they do have this symbiotic relationship, it doesn't make sense for me to be like, we're only gonna do this and then we'll do that later. Um, also because it takes time to like figure out how to sell in all those different channels, you know, like how you do your merchandising suggestions or how you work with store buyers or what kind of schedule they want the products to come in on. It's totally different than what it is for pocampo.com. And I can see an argument that we're like spreading a small team very thin, but the benefits, you know, like whenever we've like tried to cut one off, like everything just kind of goes down, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? So, symbiotic, um, like you said. Yeah, they're symbiotic, you know, and there is learnings that you can take and share across them and also learn to appreciate how they're different and different products do better in different places. And, you know, it's just kind of learn from it and lean into those learnings. Mm. What I love about what it kind of keeps coming back to for for me with what you've done well is meeting your customer where they're at. Because mm -hmm. it's so easy to get caught up in the comparison. Well, the other players in our market, and um, when you're doing your like analysis, founders, you're especially when you're in commerce, your competitors not Amazon. They will eat you alive. Um, so, no, they're another player in the market. Um, but then you start looking at brands that are like you, and it's really easy to go look at their marketing mix, but also understanding that there is something to be said about niche and being sexy. And you were like, we're for this type of biker, even within mm -hmm. bikers, you said this type. So that mm -hmm. means we not, we may not be able to approach them like hardcore bike, you know, brands are going to, and mm -hmm. you went and met those people where they were in the type of shops you went to in the type of retailers you went to which i think is so powerful even in the marketing messaging that you had so i understand this is a volume game but something you also had mentioned was that you increased your aov which is average order value um by 13 percent in the mm -hmm. commerce world that is such a game changer because there's such this acquisition, grow, grow, grow type of thing that we perpetuate in startups, especially the ones who raise a boatload of money. Um, but then when you actually look at their their unit economics, it's trash because mm -hmm. they, A, have really low margins. They're not getting people to buy more than that than they actually invested in acquiring that customer. Um, so the great thing about boosting, focusing on boosting AOV is it gives you the opportunity to say, you know what, we don't need to put as much pressure to go and acquire, 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 when we might not have the spend to do it. How do we focus on increasing the order size? So what have you seen work for Pocampo in achieving that goal? Yeah, that's been um, one of our big testing areas this year. And I'm really pleased with the traction that we've gotten or the growth. Um, 
and a part of this was coming from a COVID year where we saw our orders dramatically increase, but the cart size really dropped down just because our biggest and most expensive product are the more bike commuting bags. And with everybody working from home, not biking with their laptops, you know, they were buying the smaller bags for more recreational rides. And really like seeing how it's so great that we've gotten all these new customers and orders, but like, if only they had been buying the bigger bag, <laughs> you know, and thinking about now that we've gotten a good um, customer acquisition strategy, it's working. Um, if we could increase the basket size and that would just give us a better return on the money that we're spending there and trying to think about how we could different things we can try and the accessories actually was part of that so when i talked before about the bike lights and the water bottle that was thinking like if we could just bump this up by like 15 dollars, you know it would be awesome you know and that could be another bag or it could be an accessory and trying and experimenting with different ways to prompt that, you know, whether it's like buy a couple of things and you get a discount on the whole thing or just like explain why this is really helpful right now and um, to see it go up. Um, we also have seen some behavior changes this year, kind of a COVID year two. Um, so we had the bigger bags that were for bike commuting, but with people working from home, you're not taking your laptop as much, but people are still using their bike for more trips because they started and they like it. And now maybe they're going to the grocery store or they're meeting friends in a park or they're going to go hang out with some friends to throw Finsbury around. I don't know, you know, but like you need, you still needed a big bag. It's just not a bike commuting bag, not a bag for a laptop, you know? So we had um, products that a big bag we were going to launch this year. And it was like a big bike commuting bag. And we're like, you know what, let's just change it to be more like, a big bag for carrying a lot of stuff by bike and kind of dial down that laptop commuting piece and kind of dial up the versatility and how it's easier to use your bag bike for all these things. Um, and so kind of changing the products and we did change the product a bit, but a lot of it was really just around the marketing copy um, to be more about that, you know, less about like the biking in the boardroom, which was always kind of our thing and more like using your bike for more trips and helping you carry stuff. Um, so being able to kind of sell those higher price bags to this new customer that we're seeing now just yes. with the behavior changes from COVID. Meeting them where they're at, using the data to follow yeah. the customer instead of listening yes. to their bullshit responses. Love that. <laughs> so you, what I love about this is you started in 2009, so it's been a de over a decade now, and you have grown and it isn't that hyper rocket growth though. It's really intentional and there's nothing wrong with that. You have grown a really solid, solid, strong brand. Um, but you now in what the last year or two um, started raising capital. It wasn't VC, but you started raising capital. Can you walk us through, how did you initially fund this business in 20, 2009? And then what made you decide to go and raise capital and where did you get it from? Yeah, so for the first 10 years, um, we were mostly bootstrapped and it was a lot of debt. I'm like the queen of creative funding and debt and things like that. I love that. Um, yeah, and you know, it, it kept everything going, you know, and that's the way to think of it because I, I think like we were, I always believed that there would be a time where 
people would start using biking and alternative transportation just because the benefits are so numerous. And like once it became safer and more people would do it, I, knew, I just knew that it would happen. And kind of like staying around until that started to happen was the goal. <laughs> and like using that time to do kind of like backend stuff, you know, perfecting the product with the customer, getting a great supply chain, all that kind of stuff. And so in 2019, I started to see like the market was there, you know, as the e-scooters, which aren't so common in New York, but other places around the country or the world are super popular. And really just seeing this kind of mass customer behavior shift into the bike lane, I was like, this is our moment, you know, this is what we've been waiting for. And so at the end of 2019 was like, what is really holding us back from seizing this moment, you know, what we've been waiting for. And it did feel because we were so bootstrapped, you know, I was still doing most things. I wasn't doing it alone, you know, but it was like very part-time people or very junior people and feeling like that was kind of the biggest barrier was like really wanting to surround myself with the expertise that we needed to really go after it and then to equip everybody with the resources that they would need to do it. Um, and that, you know, I know with the um, bootstrapping and the loans, it's just like little chunks of like 5,000, 10,000, $15,000 loans, you know, um, and not like enough where I could like give it a go for a year. Um, and so that's when I started, like, I think we're ready to do the fundraising now because of that. Um, and really wanting to supercharge it, wanting to be that rocket ship that I saw when we first launched it and feeling like we're ready now, like we've got the product, we've got the markets ready. Um, and really wanting to go after it. I love that. So I love everything that you you broke down, especially around how you've been really intentional and thoughtful about meeting your customers where they're at. So I'm not surprised that you all have seen this this level of growth. What do you feel is one of the biggest mistakes you've made? And there's a lot as an entrepreneur, but one of the biggest mistakes you've made that has turned out to be one of your greatest lessons as a leader, especially <laughs> moving forward and growing the company to where it is today. Oh, I know exactly. I love um, it. <laughs> it was awful. So bad. <laughs> the wound still feels fresh. Oh. Um, it, it was uh, in 2011, 2012. Um, I had deemed it necessary to move production from Chicago to overseas to be able to bring the price down because um, we, it was, the product was just too expensive. And we did like a test where we like to kind of took out our whole margin and like knocked the price down and they, the product started selling. I was like, okay, so the price is a big issue. And um, we had a good relationship with the, this a factory in Chicago it was a woman that ran it. I was like, oh, you know, thank you so much for getting us going. But this is what we've learned. We need to move overseas. And she's like, oh, well, let me help you with that. I have a relationship with this factory in China. Um, I'll take care of it. And I was like, oh, this is so perfect because I trusted her. Like she knew the product and I didn't know anything about making stuff in China. So to have like an intermediary that was experienced, it just felt like, oh, okay, yeah. this is perfect, you know? Um, and so this was, here comes the mistake. <laughs> I, I totally trusted her to handle all of it. So I didn't bet the factory at all. And the factory made like, kind of like iPad cases, you know, so like very simple folios for iPads mm -hmm. primarily. And they would just like crank them out, you know, and do 50,000, yeah. you know? And whereas 
I didn't need 50,000 bags. I needed maybe a thousand. <laughs> and even that was hard. Um, mm -hmm. And our bags are very intricate and complicated. You know, I thought, oh, you know, I have this person. She knows it. She'll work with them. Um, but it was really not what they do. Um, they pushed us to order more than we needed. Um, mm. But I felt like, well, I already kind of put this in motion. I took a guess at what the products would be. I went to a, the outdoor retailer trade show. And it was like, I felt like I was in a movie about an entrepreneur, you know, like our booth was just <laughs> flooded with REI and Mountain Equipment Sports and Title IX. Everybody loved it. Like newspaper people came around. I felt like, oh my God, this is happening. But I sold all this stuff based on these cheaper prices, you know? So it's like, yeah. I couldn't go back and be like, well, actually they're going to cost twice as much and it's going to take a lot longer, you know? So I really mm. felt like here's my big opportunity. Here's the thing I've been waiting for. I've gotten all this interest, all these orders need to make it happen. And so I just pushed, you know, just get it done, just do it. And mm -hmm. not only did the product show up four months late, which for a seasonal business is devastating. So I already had a lot of canceled orders. The product was pretty hit or miss. Like um, some of the SKUs were totally fine, but there were enough that weren't good. Like the shoulder strap would just rip out if you put too much in it. And then feeling like I had received all this inventory that I couldn't really sell. And I had borrowed money, a lot of money from friends and family, coworkers with the promise of being able to pay it back within six months, knowing like that's definitely not going to happen. Um, and really feeling like I just became obsessed with how I could move the inventory to get more money and totally like lost sight of everything else. And I remember talking with kind of a business coach then, and she's like, well, Maria, who is your customer? And I was like, I don't even know anymore. Oh. <laughs> I remember saying that. And so, I mean, it was just so horrible, you know? And so now like all you spent so much time kind of like building up whatever brand goodwill you have and how quickly it can just be gone, you know, uh. like, just out the windows have to start over, you know? And so now I'm like, so like product quality is number one, cannot compromise, you know, have to make sure it's good. I mean, things still go wrong. I mean, don't get me wrong, you're mm. making stuff. I mean, but nothing like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and then also always being like, putting the customer first, you know, and not the growth first. And I think that that was also one thing like, oh my God, here's my big opportunity. I will get to a million next year, you know, if all this mm -hmm. happens and then they reorder and, you know, and kind of like getting so like ready for that reality and just kind of losing sight of putting the customer first and making sure this is actually what they want and in the level they want. <laughs> yes. So not just growth for growth's sake because your mm -hmm. number one investor will and has always been your customer. Mm -hmm. So one of our things that in motto I get you done is fuck 4%. Um, because women entrepreneurs, we're nearly half of entrepreneurs, but our companies bring in 4% of total business revenues. You have built this company to a level that most women founders have not been able to do. So as you go to this next chapter um, in Pocampo, what are you focusing on to grow business revenues to the next level? Yeah, you know, and I think a lot of that is psychological, honestly, you know, because when I um, started to go and raise money, um, I was still feeling like I was talking to banks. And I think this is where being cautious and conservative is like the currency, you know, and to 
but for investors, it's the complete opposite. You know, it's about the vision. It's about thinking big. It's like knowing that, yeah, this probably isn't going to happen, but like in a perfect world, you know, what would happen? And um, I remember being like my first um, pitch thing was like, and then in five years, we'll be at a million dollars. And my coach was like, nobody's going to get excited about that. I'm like, that would be amazing. He's like, no, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that wouldn't be amazing, you know? And I remember I changed it to 5 million and that's like all I felt comfortable with that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But now it's like, "Mm -mm, now it's 50 million, you know? (laughs) And I think like just getting like, practicing saying it and then being like okay is that possible if everything went right what would what would we do to get there stop thinking about what is the next thousand dollars i can bring in but what's Mm. the next fifty thousand thing i can do with my time and just kind of like really kind of putting on thinking the bigger numbers for me was the biggest game changer you know because then it's like okay my time is valuable I've spent a lot of my time going after a $50, $500 order, you know, what will be the next $50,000 order, you know, yeah. next $500,000 order, you know, and kind of like starting to think that way. And not that the $50 orders and $500 orders aren't important, you know, but really kind of being like, really wanting to go after that bigger number. And um, for me, it's not so much the big number, but what the big number means. And for me, what it means is that when I look out the window and I see people biking, they'll have a Pocampo bag. And why that's important to me (laughs) is because um, I know that they're the best and they're really designed to make it a better and more seamless experience. And I know that we do that better than anyone else. So like to have that vision and be like, you know, if, if that happens, then all these other amazing things have happened. And that's really what the money means to me you know yeah because I, I think some people that. like are driven by just a big number you know yeah and, and that's where it fails like uh, there's and we keep seeing it now there's the toxic growth for growth's sake is mm-hmm. that at the end of the day if you are not putting out quality if it's not pe- something people want to return to then it doesn't matter if you said like so many founders are like we're gonna be a billion dollar company i'm like great how big is this market it's a mm-hmm. billion dollar market like, so you're going to own 100% of the market? Amazon doesn't even own 100% of the market. So <laughs> what are we talking about? But I think we've socialized entrepreneurs to just think, oh, being charismatic and let's just go big or go home. It's like, be yes, go big or go home, but be intentional about going big and understand what big means to you and mm-hmm. what impact means to you. That's the most important. Mm-hmm. So I'm so mm-hmm. glad that you mm-hmm. even iterated that this is why that money matters. Mm-hmm. Um, impact. I love that. So yeah. based on that focus, where can we support you? Oh, great question. Um, I would say uh, we're always looking for more partnership opportunities. So maybe this is a good place for um, this audience. You know, um, if you're in a space where it is kind of active outdoor um, and can see how we could do something together, then I would I, I can never get enough of those projects. So, like I said before, the upsides are just so numerous and um, always looking for partners there. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you want to learn more traction tips like these from Badass Women Entrepreneurs Weekly, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
And while you're there, queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetsshitdone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. Until next time, queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done.